What's up, my miners of intelligence and consciousness? I'm Rick Brooks, and this is Rick's Mind. Today with me, I have guest Till Kellerhoff, who's a program director of the Club of Rome. Really hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Welcome to the show, Till. How are you, man? Hi, Rick. Good to see you. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. So I think we've got a lot to get into, and there's not a lot of knowledge about what Club Rome is, so I think the best place to start is how you got interested in this, how you got involved, and then what Club Rome is. And I'll kind of flip it to you, and then we can go from there. Great. Yes, sure. And I, I acknowledge that Club of Rome is is uh, differently known at different places in the world. Um, so I think in, in Germany, for example, I think it's quite well known, while I, I know that in the US that's a little bit different. So I got involved with the Club of Rome five and a half years ago um, after uni. I did politics, economics, social science, international relations, and always wanted to do a PhD afterwards and thought ah, maybe one year of practically work experience would be nice. And and here I am five years later, still with the Club of Rome because I like the kind of combination of research aspects as well as communicating about them and kind of feel like it's a little bit, um, it gives yourself more resonance if you uh, don't just write papers to people read, but can actually speak about it. And that was always the point of the Club of Rome actually. It was an organization founded uh, in 1968 already. Uh, so more than 50 years ago, interestingly, by an Italian industrialist, um, CEO of Fiat back then, and uh, one of the heads of the OECD. And uh, they they noticed something in the world is not going right. And and we, if we look at the future, if we look at the next 100 years, um, the humanity will face uh, massive challenges. And uh, they they started to found this informal organization based on three pillars. One is systemic thinking. So looking at the interconnectedness of social, environmental, et cetera, factors, um, having a global perspective, um, and uh, looking at these problems from an interdisciplinary perspective. And uh, so this group came together. It was very much an old white man club uh, back then um, that luckily changed by now. Um, and then in 1972, the seminal report, The Limits to Growth, was published, which is until now the most famous report of the Club of Rome. Absolutely. And limits to growth for people that aren't aware, what kind of is that paper about in a nutshell? Yeah. So interestingly, Dennis Meadows, one of the co-authors, once once summarized it uh, or the reception to it as millions of people thought it was right. Millions of people thought it was wrong. And a few people have actually read the book because the book actually um, it, it, it had quite some resonance. We estimate that about 10 million copies were sold back then, uh, translated into 30 languages. Um, and the general message was that unlimited material growth on a finite planet is not possible. So the book described different scenarios. It didn't predict anything, which was often a misinterpretation. It looked at different scenarios and what would happen if we behave that way or that way? What happened if population continued? that way or industrial output that way or pollution that way. And then looking at this from an interconnected point of view, they came to the conclusion that if if uh, the current trends back in the early 70s continued as they were, which basically happened, we would face a decline and collapse uh, mid-20th century. And, and, and it's an interesting book because I, I think today many people would say, oh, the, the message is quite clear. I mean, we're transgressing our planetary boundaries. We see climate change. We see biodiversity issues, all these things. We, we know that by now we would need 1.7 Earth to have a sustainable consumption, um, which is we, of course, don't have it. Um, and still back then, the reception was, was very 
critical um, also for, for ideological reasons, I would say. For example, Ronald Reagan uh, famously said, there are no limits to growth because there are no limits to our dreams. And I would say that's already a clear sign of misinterpretation based on ideological reasons. Yes, yes, absolutely. It, it, it does, you know, we ended up, we're at 8 billion now. I believe we just crossed the, the 8 billion mark of number of humans on the planet. And it's my understanding that it's going to level off and then we're going to have some population decline. Um, I don't know. You would know more about that. That's just what I'm hearing, right? I haven't looked into it per se. Uh, is that, that is correct, right? That is correct. And I think population is a very tricky topic as well, because very often, uh, especially, you know, people in Europe or the US, if they refer to all oh, population growth is the biggest problem of our time, and then very often refer to kind of African countries who get too many children. And I think that's mm -hmm. partly even racist and partly a big misinterpretation of what's actually going on. Because if you look at the material footprint and what we consume as uh, world citizens, you know, probably the three of us uh, uh, consume way more than uh, people in the poorest countries of the world. So, so I think population is, of course, an issue. There is a difference if there are 8 billion people on Earth or 12. But I think we have to go a little bit deeper into that. And people who claim, like, oh, population growth is the main topic, forget a little bit about the overconsumption of the rich, which I think is, is, is the main problem. And in terms of the development... Sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. You're, I'm just, just going to... Yeah, continue. just briefly in terms of the development, I think that um, what, what we see... Um, is that birth rates are declining in uh, rich countries due to different factors. Most importantly, uh, it's education for women. You know, if women can have a career and uh, want, want to have a job and all these things, then uh, this reduces the birth rate already. Uh, the other thing is, of course, social security systems um, and, and these things. So I think the great thing here is that we have fantastic co-benefits. You know, we need to implement policies like empowerment of women anyways, uh, social security systems anyways, uh, and then we will stabilize the birth rate as well. So we already see that in Germany, I think it's now uh, 1.4. In many industrialized countries, it's lower, um, and that will equal out. And there are different estimates of when it will equal out. Uh, some would say it's 11 billion and 1,100. Um, some would say it's it's lower than that and will equal out to 10 billion. That's not 100% predictable, but that there will be a peak uh, at some point in the next decades. That's quite clear. Yeah, it's uh, to me the the one thing that and I I definitely believe that we're experiencing climate change, but I think that the cognitive dissonance around like what you see that the let's say I'll use like Leonardo DiCaprio or someone that's famous. They're, you know, screaming about, we all need to change, but it, it always feels like, no, you guys need to change. I'm going to hop on my private jet, I'm going to get on my yacht, and I'm going to just continue doing things. But everyone else needs to change, just not me. And that I think that that is what, that's where a lot, that loses a lot of people. Because it's, it's, it's like everyone, you're expecting everyone else to make sacrifices, but but not yourselves. And I think that that's something that the movement really has to figure out how to overcome. And I don't know how you do that. Very much and very good point, because I think that's, again, the, you know, overconsumption of the rich. If you look at who causes the climate crisis, it's like the richest 1% of people in the earth, which is like 
60 million people, 63 million, um, since 1990 um, emitted more than double the amount of CO2 than the poorest half of world population. So, you know, like the one top percent has a massively over uh, consumption issue there, um, while uh, most people, you know, don't, don't actually uh, use that much. And I think that, that, that this cognitive dissonance definitely comes in there. You know, if you want to have people who say on moral grounds, like we all need to change, need to change and fly with a private jet somewhere else, that's of course, uh, you know, um, doesn't make much sense. And for poor people, it must sound weird because they can't afford their next vacation and are actually happy if they can go to Mallorca once a year, um, which, which, you know, uh, makes total sense. So what we try to do, do at the Club of Rome and, and, and this Earth for All initiative is to look at the systemic changes, like the policies we need, um, instead of uh, kind of outsourcing the problem in this neoliberal mindset to the individual and say, like, you now um, uh, can't fly anymore, you can't eat meat at all, you can't do all these things, and, and look at the what policies are necessary. I think that's one important point. And the other one is really integrating this whole inequality aspect as a crucial part of solving climate change, because exactly for the reasons you say, like there are certain people um, who, who are mostly responsible for this. And these are also the ones who um, need to uh, reduce consumption and take the um, share of responsibility and actually pay for the transformations we need. And what kind of policies did you, like for the people that didn't read the book, what kind of policies did you guys propose in the new book? I believe what Earth for All, what, what, what? Yeah, if you yeah. could kind of let us in on that. Yeah. So Earth for All was a was an interesting process because it came together by uh, with the help of thirty economists from across the globe and climate scientists from across across the globe, and was a two years project. And if you would have asked me two years ago if we were able to find an agreement, I, I wouldn't have been so sure because also in this scene, kind of people have different opinions on certain things. And what we tried to do in Earth for All with the economists and climate scientists, with the help of a computer model, but also other research, was to look at the minimum amount of transformations necessary uh, to achieve something like well-being for all on a, on a relatively stable planet. Um, and and uh, the important thing for us is this combination of ecological and social factors. So the five areas we describe and bring up policies for each of these areas uh, is an energy transformation because we know that uh, fossil fuel industry is actually the most important thing to, to combat climate change. The second one is uh, food production. Um, um, because we know that uh, ever-expanding landmass um, leads to um, massive problems with uh, biodiversity loss. You know, look at the Amazon rainforest, like uh, just going there uh, and cutting down trees has massive effects on Earth. Um, and then these two are kind of the environmental ones. And then we have uh, one which is tackling inequality, because we say that inequality is not only a monetary issue and a normative issue, that we, of course, want people to uh, have a decent life and benefit from uh, our economic system, which is not always the case. Um, but also because we think that massive inequality in countries leads to amount of polarization and dysfunctionality that makes it difficult to implement policies that can then fight climate change. Uh, the fourth one is fighting poverty. Um, I think all this whole debate, this whole climate change debate, needs to look at the poorest in the world. Like uh, otherwise, like we we are, we have a system which is partly based on post-colonial structures. We have trade systems that are beneficial for certain people, but um, exploit other people and. 
if you don't kind of make sure that the poorest in the poorest countries have a decent a minimum uh, living standard first, then uh, uh, tackling inequality, uh, tackling uh, climate change in these countries won't be possible either. And the last point is uh, the empowerment uh, turnaround, as we call it, um, to particularly give education and um, jobs uh, uh, to, to women, which is uh, related to uh, a normative factor, because I feel like, you know, in 2022 in Germany, women who have the exact same jobs still get like 8% less money than men, which is just a normative, an normative question, just not understandable, but also related to this population uh, issue I mentioned before. The more education and the more social security systems are there, uh, the faster the, um, the birth rates uh, decline. Yeah, that's and that's that's. I think that's that's very fascinating. So we're already seeing, you know, the the the, the declining birth rates, and I just actually had the pleasure of, of speaking with uh, Mark Jacobson, um, which is an environmental engineer at the University of Stanford, and he wrote a, a paper. I think it's. Uh, I don't remember the name of the paper, John, so maybe help me out here, but uh, um, he'll he'll find it. <clears throat> Basically, uh, the Green New Deal is is is. A lot of they borrowed a lot of the ideas that he'd wrote, and there are currently, I think, we could get 145 countries on all renewable energy by 2030. Um, and I think there are like 15 or 16 that are almost completely green. And I know Denmark comes to mind. So we are definitely trending in the right direction. You have a lot of companies such as like Redwood Materials, um, you have Tesla that is, is, is making wide stream and Rivian as well, wide stream adoption of electric vehicles more feasible um, and affordable. So I, I when I look at the climate change I think that another issue that a lot of people have is it's been so doom and gloom and and it's really hard to to convince people to turn around if all they're hearing is we're all going to die. I mean we are going to die anyways, but like like the planet's dying and we're screwed. Like there's a lot of hope out there. There's a there's a lot of really cool things um that are are coming on and I was wondering, you know, does the book highlight any of that? Very much, and, and and good points. I um, so one one tagline we have in the book is uh, we call this uh, stop war and optimism um, to exactly refer to these good examples that are already already out there. Because I agree. I mean, there is an energy transformation um, happening. I'm sure we are in the end game of fossil fuel industries. Um, it just you know it's it's <coughs> still still around and the. Crucial question is if it will happen fast enough, because it is it it is a race with time. Um, because we we know that that climate change is not only an issue that develops kind of linearly when you have like more CO two temperature rises as much as that as well, but there is a challenge of certain kind of tipping points that after crossing certain uh, uh, certain um, amounts of uh, CO two, for example, the system uh, um, tips uh, quicker than we would expect in a linear way. And I think the, the 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 question there is then, yeah, are we fast enough for the energy transformation to take place? We have the positive examples mostly in countries that have good uh, you know, conditions in terms of uh, sun or water or uh, all these things. So it's more difficult in other countries than than than, than in others. Um, but yeah, good examples are out there. Um, but but I think sometimes we, we also need to ask uh, bigger questions. For example, if we speak about um, electric cars, I think it's a good example. We need these and we need electric cars. However, 
um, we we can't just replace all all combustion engines with electric cars, right? And I think that's sometimes the issue of like uh, looking at at things that are not just kind of within the same system, trying replacing one thing by the other, but looking at uh, the real transformation and and that that is an important point also referring to your uh, doom argument which i agree with i mean it's you know it can can lead to uh, resistance or or kind of uh, people saying oh we don't have a chance anymore anyways we just die and we we don't do anything so i think it's super important to paint a little bit this positive vision and say like it is possible um and and maybe an interesting factor there is even I think it would even be beneficial for people if climate change wasn't there at all. Like a transformation of cities, for example. How great is it to be in a city where you don't rely only on car traffic, but can can walk and take a bike? I mean, that's in itself a fantastic thing, right? Education for women in itself a great thing. Like um, uh, having less pollution and uh, maybe not gigantic plastic uh, continents uh, in, in the oceans is itself a positive outcome. And I think all these things to say like it is possible and the better life uh, is not only necessary because we want to prevent climate change, but actually because we established a system which which doesn't deliver an always better life for everyone anymore. Like we, we had this narrative in the US, it's 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 very much the American dream and in Germany, it's uh, this like, uh, and in many other countries, I want my children to have a better life than I have. We see that this empirically is not in many countries true anymore. We see that, that from the growth of the economy in the last 20 years, low and medium income uh, families did not really benefit from that, but partly have like three jobs and uh, have to pay back debts and uh, have a very stressful life. And I think, uh, you know, bringing this together and say like, we want an economy that serves the people, uh, and in addition to that, say, you know, uh, fight climate change, uh, but not say everything is lost anyways, but get behind this and say like, we want this transformation for our own sake, because we want to be happy people, that should be the challenge. My apologies, uh, so, my laptop's going to die. So. <laughs> uh, it's okay. Uh, Rick, so to go back to Mark Jacobson, his the paper that you're referencing is called Low-Cost Solutions to Global Warming, Air, Producing, Air Pollution, and Energy Insecurity for 145 Countries. And basically, to summarize it, he <clears throat> through this study, is he's the main author, but there's about seven or eight other authors, uh, was that by 2035, using current technology and not anything that has to be developed or things that need to be solved, but literally just the only green technologies that we currently have available, that roughly it would cost uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of $6 trillion a year to convert all of this, but then the cost of that through the savings that would be produced through changing to green technologies would be paid for by itself uh, within like 15 years, I think. And so that like, th this is kind of talking to that, the positivity about this is a genuine, like a very solvable problem, but we all actually have to act on it and not just run off of profit motive. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And there is a lot of positive. If you look at the decline of costs of solar panels, for example, I mean, it's incredible in the last 10, 15 years even um, uh, that it can in many places already, not globally necessarily, but compete with fossil fuel industry prices. I mean, that's fantastic. And uh, there are positive uh, visions of that. I, I don't know the specific uh, paper, but we also have an estimation on Earth for All that we think the transformation will cost uh, between 2 to 4% uh, of, of global GDP, GDP annually. 
If you compare that with what is the NATO agreement on defense, that is 2%, right? I mean, so it is something that is, that is of course, um, a massive transformation, but it's also something that is possible, especially, as you mentioned, John, that, that the costs will equal out at some point, because we already see that, that I, I often say that, that actually the really radical political uh, uh, solution is to continue business as usual, because we, if we continue this business as usual, then we have the floods in Pakistan that already costs, uh, I don't know, hundreds of millions of, of, of dollars. Uh, then we have uh, kind of other droughts in many countries and uh, problems with, with food security um, and extreme weather events and all these things. So uh, it's, it's always this cost question is, is, of course, important because you need investment and therefore I also think you need a strong state to, to get this done because, uh, of course, like the uh, private companies play a crucial role, but very often it is um, they have to in the system uh, base their decisions on profit and uh, so I, I think like support by government is necessary to, to steer the transformation in the right way. But then um, I, I, I agree, um, it is not, not impossible. And that was our whole thing in the book as well, to say like, look, it's ambitious, but we don't uh, come up with a dreamy, uh, hippie thing, which is uh, just a better world, uh, and, uh, but something actually to, to implement. I hear you. I do, but I definitely think profits there, because if you look at a lot of these companies, um, there's some of them are not really startups, and I, I know off the top of my head I can't name name them, but I know if you look at Redwood Materials, they they recycle lithium batteries right from Tesla's. If you if you look at, I think it's Blue Whale Technologies. I, I may have gotten that wrong. They're also in the battery recycling business. And there are people that are, there's a, a, a lake in California that they, they're running uh, hydrogen, not hydrogen. The salt and sea. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Basically, they convert that to, if they heat it, superheat the salt water, it converts to lithium, lithium ions or something, something of that effect. I'm butchering all of this. Also, but, don't forget, there's uh, a lot of research being done into alternative sources of lithium, including, uh, I believe crap. it was a study. Yep. Yeah, at Crabs. the University of Maryland, uh, crab shells using material lithium or materials in that to make renew, uh, rechargeable batteries. Yeah, but there's there's money to be made, and a lot of the investors. I know that Warren Buffett, especially uh, with that Salt Lake, it's geo geothermal heating. Warren Buffett's owns that, so there's already all this. There's a race I see to become the. <laughs> for lack of a better term, the sheiks of clean energy. And there's a lot of money behind it. And I definitely think that that's going to help widespread adoption of these new technologies. So it's, it's interesting to see, um, definitely just looking at it from an economic perspective and an investment pers perspective, right? Like, um, we like to give stock ticks out on the show. Buy clean energy, fools. No, <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, I, I, I just... It's exciting to kind of see the advancements, even since I was a kid, solar panels, like you gave a great example, solar panels used to be so expensive, and now they're, they're relatively inexpensive. Um, yeah. That's going to help with, uh, one of my concerns was with all these electric cars, is that going to put a, a massive strain on the grid? Well, if we get more adoption in solar panels, not necessarily, we should be good. Um, so there's, there's a lot of interesting... Uh, there's a lot of interesting things going on. There's a, a you know companies in California that are covering um, 
they're covering streams with these like plastic balls. Um, and that's, that's been a while ago since we interviewed that gentleman. Um, so gentlemen, I need your help there, but there's, there's so much innovation that is happening, uh, with these technologies. It's, it's been, it's been a joy to kind of keep up to date and, and watch. And then, um, also it, it's good that people are writing about it. So I, I want to continue to hammer this point. Like it is not all doom and gloom folks. Like there's a lot of really cool things that are happening. Rick, you were referencing, uh, Roger Bales. He's a yes, uh, environmental scientist and engineer, environmental engineer at the university of California Merced and university of Cal Berkeley. They're, uh, project is to, I forget what the name of it is, but they're covering the uh, agricultural uh, waterways in Central California mm-hmm. with solar panels. Since all the all the waterways already have all of the electricity and everything wired to them, they can cover them and it will reduce costs for cleaning the waterways. It will increase energy availability and also help with uh, evaporation from the heat. Yeah. That's what the back, yeah. the back balls. Yeah, yeah and, and I, I think that is fascinating, isn't it? I mean, a lot of like, even in the last 10 years, what, what comes up there in terms of new sources and uh, new solutions. I think what we have to have to see, though, is that a lot of these innovations are uh, actually also based on initial state funding. So I'm always a bit skeptical when people say like, oh, you know, like we uh, as companies uh, do that and the state can just stay out of that. Um, because uh, if you look at uh, Mariana Mazzucato, who wrote a strong state about the uh, book about the entrepreneurial state and kind of how many innovations, be it chips and phones or whatever, comes actually from initial research of states. So I think there needs to be a better balance between markets and states uh, in this regard. But in addition to that, I think fantastic. Like if we can set up these markets uh, that uh, lead us into the right direction and have all these innovative uh, things you mentioned and green hydrogen and all these things, that's brilliant. Especially as as we could now see in the last uh, months that that there are not only what economists then call environmental externalities to to fossil fuel stuff like you know pollution and all these things, things we don't want but just come along with extracting these things. But also security externalities, actually. I mean, we, as I'm in Germany now, uh, we made ourselves very dependent of uh, an autocracy and of, of Russia. Uh, and at the beginning of the war, we had over 50% of the gas import from Russia. I mean, that, that it's not a smart idea to become completely reliable on a dictatorship could have been an argument already, or someone people could have noticed that a while ago. But I think now it becomes even more present. And, and it's interesting how the discourse there also shifts. Like now the uh, head of the liberal party in Germany, which was always like not the front runner of, of sustainable issues, but you know, he now speaks about uh, renewable energies as freedom energies because he says we become uh, independent from other states, and there's there's some truth to it, you know, and 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 I think that all the innovations you mentioned, this will all be necessary um, to to not have this doom and gloom uh, uh, outlook scenario and story, um, which is why we in, in this Earth for All book also then develop kind of two scenarios. And, and one is this too little, too late, where we just continue with the current trends. And the other one is this giant leap. And the giant leap scenario is actually the one you're, you know, you, you, you have in mind there as well, when you say like, it's not all doom and gloom, but it is actually possible if we put effort into it. Um, I just think we, we, we shouldn't pretend that that great we're on the right track and everything will go as 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 now and then we will solve the problems especially for the social dimension which 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 i think we really have to be aware of yes and and let's say now let's get into the doom and gloom we've been real positive let's say we just continue on the path that we're on now yeah what happens Uh I mean, we have um, in, in this scenario developed different outcomes. One is we won't 
get uh, temperature rise under control, which will be about 2.5 degrees in 2100, which uh, does mean uh, way more extreme weather events, which uh, does mean more droughts, which does mean problems for food security, which is, by the way, not only a problem of certain countries. You know, one could think like, oh yeah, Pakistan, they then have their problems, um, because we in Europe and the US, we have enough funds to adjust ourselves to that and, you know, build some dikes and whatever. Um, but of course, in a global system, um, you know, rising food prices will have uh, outcomes for polarization in the US and Germany. Um, ma massive migration waves uh, will, of course, um, have have political consequences in, in, in rich countries as well. And uh, so this is one aspect, rising temperature, um, increased climate change, and thereby problems coming along with it. The second one that we see inequality rising uh, over the next decades. Um, so we see that trend in the last years, we will continue seeing it, that actually a small minority benefits from uh, our economic system, while while many people don't. And that is, that is true both globally, so that, that people in countries of the global south uh, don't don't actually get out of this poverty trap um, but also that inequality in in rich societies increases even more which then leads to polarization and dysfunctional societies and I I, I would say that that people like bolsonaro in Brazil uh, are, are signs of that uh, or, or the whole like populist movement across uh, different uh, countries in the world uh, is, is a sign of that. So I think that is that is um, uh, another aspect. And what we then um, kind of we have a, in the model, we included a well-being index. Um, so kind of trying to measure, of course, we, we know it's not completely objective and there are some problems with it, but uh, trying to measure the well-being of people. And I think the trend is quite clear that in this uh, too little too late scenario, uh, well-being will decline and uh, people will uh, feel less uh, content uh, with, with, with their life. I think one of the things you, you glossed over, which I think would be very interesting to kind of explore more, is if you know we don't get this under control, I believe that we become a lot less friendly. If we kind of extrapolate that, most of the wars that have been fought have been over resources. And if... <laughs> If your country doesn't have enough resources or enough food, the one thing that we, we've done since time immemorial is we go out and we take it. And so I think it's, you know, it's, it's incredibly important to, to kind of think about that. That's something that I feel like the movement doesn't talk about a lot is like if we, we don't figure it out and, and get a little bit better, there's going to be a lot more global strife and conflict. Um, a lot more wars, and that's never good. And especially if you look at t today, the way the world sits, like we've a lot of people have forgotten this, but I don't think we've ever, I don't, and I don't think that there'll be a nuclear war, but like, especially with the increased hostilities in Europe, that we're, we're in danger, right? We're, we're, there's a lot of peril right now. We have, t we have a, a conflict between the West and the East. On the long, along the likes of which we haven't seen since you know the '60s, '70s, and, and, and even into the '80s. Like we're, it's definitely um, not so good. And that would that would pretty much be the uh, 
the doom of all of us. So um, I think it's definitely important that we, we do develop these technologies so you can you don't have to be so dependent on these these yeah. nations. Very, very, very much. And and exactly like good point, because what, what I said before was kind of the polarization within countries. But of course, like there is already a paradigm shift going on uh, for how policy making goes beyond countries, because it's I would say it's not even a conflict only between East and West anymore, but a multipolar world where we have now the conflict uh, with 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 Russia, um, but uh, I mean, look at China. You know, we don't know what that what that's going to lead to, um, and I, I, I think that uh, this instability is is actually dangerous. Like, I, I don't believe in a in a nuclear war myself as well. But uh, if we come into this time where we are actually faced with scarce resources, and uh, countries, you know, want want to get. Uh, what uh, they think they need, uh, then uh, it's it's the tensions will rise and this kind of um, you know there's this uh, political scientist Fukuyama who said like 20 years ago the end of history like the Western liberal model of democracies will win. I'm not so sure. I mean we don't know because we are faced now with a, a situation where where China, which is an autocracy, not a democracy, is 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 highly functional in that sense, right? I mean it it's it's uh, it's not like you could say back then in the USSR, uh, of course they were the poor, they had no productivity. Uh, it was clear that this system would come to an end one day. Now we actually do have a competition of different governance models. Um and yeah, I I that's a, that's a good point. I, I like to stay here because this is something I find very, very interesting. If you look at what Xi Jinping's doing, there's a lot of environmental initiatives that are that are that 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 China's doing to to clean up and and to get sustainable. But also, the, there's a stark difference in the way these countries, like both systems, work. You have one country, the the Chinese, right? They are ran by essentially engineers and scientists they, they they really do listen and then i don't know i can't speak so much about um Ger the german political but the, in the united states we're governed by lawyers <laughs> we're going we're governed by lawyers so it's really hard to get things done um and if you look at the the production numbers of china they're they're you know we're still beating them a little bit but i don't know how much longer you know, we will be the world's largest economy. Um, and I don't know, you know, I don't know what, what that, what the future looks like. Cause there's a lot of, and we're, we're I'm going, getting way in the weeds here, but there's a lot of um, right now, I don't know if you would know this, but we are blocking their access to a lot of technologies. We're, we're, we're quietly sanctioning them. And, and the most interesting thing that I've seen is we're now forcing European countries to stop do, doing business with them. How long that is able to last, I don't know. Um, but I, I, you know, I don't know. And that's an, a, another thing is uh, there's a lot of contracts being rewarded because uh, we've been behind them for probably about the last 20, 30 years in, in the development of Africa. They're way ahead, way ahead of us. Very forward thinking society. You know, also and that's uh, just announced, I believe, within the last week that the uh, the ban on the sale of sale and an uh, uh, import of Chinese or something. It's like some restrictions on Chinese imports of uh 
super like conductor chips um, yes. for computers and things. And we have no manufacturing capacity at all. They, there's been investment. I think it was that Intel is building like a fifteen billion dollar factory in Ohio. Yes. Um, and I believe AMD is building something as well in California or some somewhere in the United States. But those plants are still. 15 to 20 years away from reaching the kind of capacity that we would need to be able to sustain any kind of development. Yeah, and yeah, it's interesting. Like, first of all, also Germany is governed by lawyers. Uh, if you look at the Bundestag and the parliament, it is mostly yeah. lawyers there, um, which is, uh, yeah, also an issue in terms of representation. Um, but yeah, it is it, it is an interesting um, time because I feel like the certain paradigms are just crashing at the moment. We always have the belief that more globalization is leading to, to you know, we, we always just have the advantages in certain countries and have chip production. 20 years ago, there would not have been this quiet ban. And now there is a tendency to localize certain things even more and go back. And and at the same time, China is, of course, you know, expanding also its political reach. Look at the Belt and uh, Road Initiative. No, what is it called? Belt and Road. Uh, so so there is like a, you know, like a, a tendency that, that, that the political power games um, uh, increase, and I, I have no idea what this leads to. I, um, it's, uh, I don't IoT, either. It's an interesting time. It is. It, I don't either. And this is this is what's so fascinating to me because I'm looking at the the, the geopolitical landscape, and I'm like, are we at the beginning of? Are we in, I don't know, the 1936, 1937 right now where everyone's incredibly hostile, everyone's quietly making moves. China's really trying to facilitate their soft power and their reach. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. I, I don't know. And it's not something that we're, we're not, <laughs> we're not paying attention over here, man. We're definitely not. Um, but it, it, and it's all tied to certain things, right? It, it really is tied to the environment. A lot of the, the dispute in the waters between Japan and China have to do with fishing rights, right? Mm. Like everything is, is boiled down to resources, which I think you, the, your book has done a, a good job of tying, making sure that that's present. And, you know, there's also an issue with like soil degradation, like we're fucking the soil up and yeah. there's so many issues and there's so much to pay attention to. And it's really hard to figure out what's, what's the most important thing, man. There's, there's, there's so much, there's so many things that are grabbing our attention. You know, most people are what's concerned about what's trending on Twitter or friggin' Instagram or whatever, but there's really, really important issues that are being discussed. And I don't know about you, but the thing that scares me is it's, they're being discussed and, and decisions are being made by people that don't necessarily understand the science behind, mm. you know, these things. Um, yeah. No, that I would would agree with, and and I, I mean the general like what 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 people call now kind of poly crisis, you know, all these different crises coming together, and uh, and then that's that's again coming back to this Club of Rome attempt to have a systemic view and and not focus on particular issues only, but see like if you zoom out, what what can you see then? Um, although even with that view, I have to say I'm a bit uh, uh, it's a bit I'm a bit lost when I look at the international uh, level at the moment because I think it is really it is really unstable and predictable. Um, and um, not 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 clear what's going to happen. So so I think what we can do is kind of focus on the positive outcomes and say like, look, these these turnarounds we describe, uh, we think these are also contributing to a more global uh, secure space, um, and uh, that 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 this is this is a positive contribution. Um, but we of course can't don't don't have any predictions in that. No. no. Um, and yeah. 
What I wanted to ask you, what are your thoughts on nuclear energy? Yeah, I think it's a contested topic for, for the reason I think probably if, if 30 years ago the climate change would have been taken as serious as, 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 as it's being taken now, we would still have nuclear and instead of coal, we would have, we would have phased out coal before nuclear. So I think yeah. that, that in that sense, if you look at emissions, um, then um, coal, coal is really, really, really harm, harmful. <laughs> and uh, we yeah. know that. So uh, th- that is an issue. And then I think it really depends on, on, on the country level. Like having following the German discourse, um, I, I think it really doesn't make much sense at the moment anymore. We have like three, three uh, nuclear power plants. Uh, building these things takes forever. Like, you need massive investment. The state actually has to take over the insurance. Um, and there are, of course, these negative externalities, you know, like the, the stuff like what you put. It's kind of scary to have something where you don't have to store it for 100,000 years. I feel like ah, that's, you know, not uh, the most sustainable way of doing it. But of different bad alternatives, I understand that this is an alternative some people recognize. Uh, and I think moving forward, though, also looking at the price decline and what we discussed before, I think it just won't make sense anymore in the future um, because I think that, that solar, wind, all these things will have a price advantage even. Um, and um, yeah, that's my, I, my take. I agree. <clears throat> when, I, when I start thinking about, especially the sun, I, I, we're going to get a little bit woo-woo here, but I think that we have to get figure out a way to get off the planet. I think that I, I think we need to be a multi-planet, multi-planetary species. And are you familiar with the Kardashev scale by chance? No. Okay. So basically there's like types of civilization, like type one, I'm going to butcher this. So John... Look this up. Make oh, sure. Oh, you mean the people. energy circle kind of thing? Is it that? Yes, thing? yes, yes. Pretty much. We yeah. have to figure. This is why I'm a big proponent of all of this. Is like we have to figure out how to harness the power of the sun, like completely to power our civilization. We we have to do that so we can become a, a, a level one civilization. I think that that leads us into the stars. That's really. I I think you know if you look at. Um, <clears throat> giant cla- you know cataclysmic events that have occurred in the past and you know i don't know we we just sent we did a med- missile test on an asteroid but that's that's something that's looming it's it's happened before it'll probably happen again you look at the giant caldera in yellowstone like i feel like we really got to get off this rock to ensure the survival of our species not only that we're also kind of killing the earth and the oceans and soil shit and maybe we just need to start over so i'm a very big proponent in these technologies because in, in order for us to really get to the stars i think that we have to you know harness the full power of the sun and so anything that drives us closer to that is something i'm a proponent of because i i don't we're very we're very crazy species and we have uh you know a bunch of civilization ending weapons all pointed at each other it's just not a it's not a it's not a good rock to be on right now we gotta we gotta get off man (laughs) but um I mean, you know, I mean, the question is if we wouldn't just transfer our power struggles we have on Earth now to uh, power struggles between Mars and Earth later, right? Because I think we probably would systemic issues we have here, and uh, the 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 uh, I mean, short term consequences of not acting now is of course so high that that this is this is not an option. Um, and uh, still, I like the you know I, I I like the idea from a kind of fantasy perspective or whatever, but I think the feasibility scaling up all these things I, I, in terms of in terms of solving the immediate crises uh, I would say uh, focus on earth uh, we have a we have a quite nice uh, planet here um, and um, and then then see what happens with with the rest of space um, afterwards after we have solved these crises 
Um, but um, at the same time, yeah, I think that that there are certain certain systemic issues we have, and and this you know power struggles and and resource wars and all these things. Um, you know, maybe then your uh, vision leads to uh, the year 2200, where the yeah. civilization on Mars developed a super weapon to not only uh, <laughs> destroy cities on Earth, but let's say, oh, we just, you know, let's, let's switch off Earth completely. So, you yeah. know, you know, no, the future is unpredictable. It's true. Um, but, I, yeah. I do have, I've got one more question for you. And, and, and what, what do you think is the most important systemic issues that we're we're dealing with now and 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 then and the second part would be how do you think would be a best way or a best the best solution to fix it yeah so i i i think like what what we try with these five turnarounds is of course to say all of them have to happen at the same time and i know that's not an answer to your question but that's a thing of saying like look we need to look at all these things i would say if you ask me directly like what comes becomes a big issue um now is is kind of this tackling climate change Paid by the rich, I think that would be the that would be the summary, um, because you 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 have it is an existential challenge with potentials to solve it, um, but uh, don't don't let the poor pay it by default, and uh, let's uh, you know implement social systems that uh, actually um, make sure that those who contributed to the pollution as well those who benefited from the system also are the ones paying uh, for the transformation, and and that would be my main point till i really appreciate you coming on this podcast man um it was really fun talking to you i enjoyed it I, i've learned a lot and uh i i think i think we have a chance i really think we have a chance man i think so too thank you that was great um yeah and thanks rick thanks john